All right, today is our last um, sermon in our series, You're Only Human. You're Only Human. And why that's a good thing that we've been looking at the past couple months. And the last four weeks, we've been wrestling with the question that Capek poses, which is, how do we live faithfully um, within our limits, within our finitude? And today, the focus is that we live faithfully with restful hearts, really trusting in our God, his kindness and goodness towards us. So let me pray that we can do that even now. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time of considering your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will settle our anxious hearts, that you will help us to do what you call us to in your word, which is to cast all of our anxieties and cares upon you because you care for us. Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd that enables your sheep to lie down in green pastures. And so I pray with your gentle and lowly heart that you will help us to trust you to receive from you, to rest in you, not only now, but each moment of our lives. And we ask that for your glory, but also for our good. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to start really quickly um, by talking about something. A couple weeks ago in our sermon series on embracing vulnerability, I talked about research done by Brene Brown, who's a professor at the University of Houston and UT Austin. And her TED Talk, um, where all of her scientific data and research led her opposite of where she wanted, which was to find enough information to learn how to control life. And it said, actually, the only way to experience life is by embracing vulnerability and pursuing relationships. And I talked about during that sermon, I love um, whenever science just clearly affirms what God's word says is true. As Nancy Piercy says, all of science is largely formalized common sense, (laughs) which I love. I love that quote. Um, I was told before I referenced Brene Brown that week, if you talk about Brene Brown, people are going to get mad. And multiple people have talked to me about it since then and said, hey, I'm surprised you referenced Brene Brown. Do you know what she thinks about X, Y, or Z, her position on LGBTQ and this and this and that? And I'm surprised you referenced her. Do you believe in her positions and agree with all of those things? And my response has been, did I say that I agree or believe with all those things? And I'm I'm not being a smart aleck when I say that. I'm like, no. And I didn't say, hey, look at her great research on vulnerability that affirms what God's word says about relationships. Therefore, go adopt and follow her wholeheartedly as her disciple. And so some of the follow-up questions have been, well, why even quote her? And the answer to that, and I think it's important for us to understand um, as a church, is we believe in God's common grace, meaning that the image of God dignity that resides in all mankind, there's a lot of wisdom that we can glean um, from multiple people in multiple sources, even outside of the church. And so I wanted to read a quote from Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She's a research professor of English, Christianity, and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So side note, she's not liberal, right? She's not like rejecting the truth claims of the Bible, in case you don't know anything about her context. She wrote a book on reading well, and she says, I know a lot of Christians in particular want to stick to the Bible, Bible commentary, and maybe some theology, But I think one of the best things we can do to improve our skills in reading the Bible and applying the Bible is to read literary art, read fiction, read poetry, read works by writers who aren't Christians, read works that challenge Christianity. Christians should read books promiscuously, read works of good doctrine, read works of false doctrine. They should test in ways so that their beliefs will become their own and not just beliefs held by others. Christians have an obligation and a duty to read widely. But not just so we can examine our own beliefs and challenge others, but simply because reading widely actually makes us better people. 
We expand our minds. We expand our empathy. We expand critical thinking skills. And ultimately, we read the Bible better because we've read widely. And there's a lot of biblical basis for this. If you follow the Apostle Paul, even in the book of Acts and Acts 17, when he's meeting in the Areopagus and he's talking to them and his goal is to talk about um, the gospel, he references their own philosophers. When he writes a letter to his apprentice Titus in Titus 1, he references Cretan um, prophets. And he uses all these cultural examples ultimately to get back to the gospel. And so I don't want people to ever be confused. When I quoted G.K. Chesterton as a Catholic theologian on gratitude last week, that doesn't mean I'm Catholic and adopt every Catholic position on salvation by works. It just means that quote about gratitude was a great quote and very good and true um, for us to be able to receive. Um, if we only, you know, listen to sources um, that we agree with in every single point, then we won't ever listen to anyone other than ourselves. And that is such an extremely dangerous position um, to hold. And then people say, well, you know, how do we actually know what's true? Well, the answer to that is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. We have to look at God's word as the only rule of faith in life. And what that means is as Christians, as a church, we have to develop a biblical worldview. So, again, Nancy Piercy in her book, Total Truth, says a biblical worldview means literally a view of the world a biblically informed perspective on all of reality. A worldview is like a mental map that tells you how to navigate the world effectively. It is the imprint of God's objective truth on our inner life. So practically, what, that, what would that look like for you each and every week? If you come in here and whoever's preaching references Brene Brown or somebody else, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Well, your posture should be similar to those in Acts 17. And that's the same chapter I've already referenced of Paul, you know, preaching in different contexts. It says that immediately Paul and Silas went away to Berea. And when they arrived there in the Jewish synagogue, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they did two things. They received the word with all eagerness. So there was a hunger and a desire to learn and receive the word. But then they would examine the scripture daily to see if those things were so. The, the truth of what they were receiving didn't reside in Paul as an eloquent orator, but the scriptures alone Many of them therefore believed, not a few Greek women of high standing as well. Our own catechism that we threw up a second ago says, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, and they are the only rule of faith and practice, period. Anything that we say or do out of accord with God's word is wrong, and it's an error. But now the challenge to developing a biblical worldview, and Mark Sayers talks about this in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, he says, in the networked world, which is where we live, even the most committed believer will consume only a fraction of the information and input from their church compared to what they consume through podcasts, YouTube, Netflix, or we could say normal news outlets, CNN, Fox News, whatever. The digital network is now our primary formational environment. It shapes our opinions, values, and our worldview. Today, the average churchgoer will Google a problem before they approach their pastor. The digital network is the primary shaper of theological, political, and cultural worldviews. And then he adds this, a more connected world is a more conflicted and therefore anxious world. And he's true. He's absolutely true. So the point there is just to say, don't kid yourself and say, no, I have a biblical worldview. If you're constantly anxious and stirred up and worried, why, why are we hearing things from Brene Brown and others? Your, your worldview is more likely than not being shaped not by God's word, but by what he said, YouTube, podcast, 
you know, CNN, Fox News, and everything else. The follow-up question I've gotten is, you know, why would you reference people like Brene Brown and others, but you're not addressing the main big cultural issues in our society? Like what? Well, what's going on with abortion? What's going on with the LGBTQ community and so forth and whatnot? And there's a couple reasons for that. One, if you actually go through and read the Bible and have a biblical worldview, you may be shocked to notice, especially in the Gospels, Jesus never gets up and gives long ranting speeches about how wicked Herod or Pilate or Caesar Augustus is. And they clearly were doing lots of evil things. In Isaiah, it says, woe to those that call good evil and evil good, right? And God's going to carry out judgment on them. But what Jesus would stand up and do after he finished flipping over you know, tables in the temple for the money changers is he would regularly look at religious leaders and say, the thing you need to be most concerned with is not the wicked political rulers or what's being taught out there, but your own self-righteousness, your own greed, your lack of love, your lack of mercy. That's the thing that you need to be most concerned with. He would tell religious leaders that were super angry he wasn't doing something about the Romans, you're nothing but sons of hell and whitewashed tombs. And so when people say, why are you not talking about the real issues? I have to lovingly remind people, Tucker Carlson does not create our agenda for what we talk about in the church. Anderson Cooper, those people don't set the agenda. The Holy Spirit does. And the thing that we have to focus on first every single week is that Christ alone is our only hope. And so if we stop doing that, that's when you need to leave. And we stop focusing on the fact that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's the thing that we need to be reminded of every week. Point two, how do I need to repent of all the ways that I'm not resting and trusting him, but I'm anxious and angry and stirred up and confused? When those two things stop happening, then you should leave the church. The concern about, hey, we're referencing and quoting people that don't hold our worldview and we're afraid that we're going to become progressive and like liberal and reject the gospel, that's a legit concern. So so don't let me dismiss that. People have been in churches that they've loved that have rejected the gospel and been hijacked by the culture. And, And so that's a legit concern. But let's not get it twisted and think that if we're not up here each and every week ranting about something wicked that President Biden has done or the same, we didn't get up and rant every week about what President Trump and all the wicked things and character ways he would act. Not because those things aren't true and there's never a space for it, but there is an unbelievable danger for us in the church to huddle up and just condemn everybody outside. We have to start by remembering what Paul said. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the greatest. He didn't say Christ came to save sinners, and that includes me, but it also, because his grace is so great, includes all these other wicked people. He put himself at the front of the line, in essence, saying, I'm the most sinful and wicked person that I've ever met and come in contact with in my life. And the greatest danger for my heart It's just to constantly rant about the wickedness of others. And so we we need to always remember that. It doesn't mean those things aren't important. It doesn't mean that politics aren't important. A part of having a Christian worldview is that comes to an impact the, the way you participate in every sphere of your life. But our main focus when we gather together to worship has to be on the gospel and our need for it. In Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus began um, to preach the good news of the gospel. And then he said, repent, believe the gospel, and follow me. And so Keller and others have said, those are the three steps of the Christian life that we need every single day. Regardless of where you are, if this is the first time you've ever come to a Christian church, 
or if you've been a pastor or elder or leader in the church for 50 years, the thing that all of us need every single day is to repent, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus. And so a part of that is we want to try to identify what are ways that I'm, I'm really not trusting. I'm saying with my mouth I believe, but I'm, I'm clearly not. And, and the clearest fruit and evidence is where am I super anxious? Where am I afraid? Right? Where am I not really in my heart trusting that, that God is sovereign, that, that he's got it, that he's not freaking out about everything that's happening in our culture, right? That, that Jesus said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my kingdom. And so we need to remember that and fight to believe that that's true. And one passage that I, I put in here, if I can find where I am, in Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth can set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their binds and cast their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He's not concerned and worried and upset about everything that's going on. And, and so we need to fight as best we can to believe and to remember that. And to be more concerned with, am I really believing and resting in the truth of the gospel, which will show up in both gratitude and repentance and a compassionate love for others, especially for those that are different than us, rather than a judgmental, condemning spirit. And so Jesus' own brother James says it this way, the wisdom that comes from below, earthly wisdom, is unspiritual and demonic, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. In other words, that's what we see in our society, and we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said you shouldn't be surprised that there's going to be chaos and tribulation, and the world's going to hate you because they hated me. But then he says the wisdom that comes from above, this is the wisdom that we as his people receive from God, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Boy, imagine if that was true of us. We average close to 600 adults on Sunday mornings in our worship services, 250 some odd kids. So let's just say roughly 600 people that live in this community in a five to 10 mile radius. Imagine each week if we went out as a missional army to do that to pursue peace, that we were full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Pastor and seminary professor Jack Miller, who discipled Tim Keller, said that the gospel calls us as his people to mount a love offensive on the hearts of others. Gosh, that's both condemning and I hope inviting. Instead of being so fired up that someone you knew posted something on Twitter and you think they're a complete moron, what if you thought, how can I mount a love offensive on their heart? Oh, Lord, who made me to differ but thee? I cannot believe that your, your grace has come and changed my life. Please, Lord, protect me from the most dangerous thing in my life, which is my own pride and arrogance. This past Friday night, I had a chance to, um, I kind of orchestrated a little surprise dinner for the guy that discipled me at Clemson Prez and has been a huge gift. I reference him all the time, just the impact he had on my life. And he's the, the guy who lovingly told me, Matt, almost everything you believe about God isn't actually in the Bible. <laughs> and multiple things that still stick in my head from the year that we met. Um, 
he's been such a gift, and he impacted a lot of different men. So he's been having a hard time lately, and I've been talking to his wife, and I said, what if we coordinate a time to get a bunch of the guys together and surprise him and just have a night to encourage him and tell him how much we love him and we'll tell stories. And so we did that Friday night in Clemson. And my goal and expectation was we're going to spend the whole evening telling him stories. And I was excited to hear stories from these other guys about him. And we did that. That might have been maybe 20% of the time. What 80% of the time turned into was him saying, guys, like, I love y'all, but I really wish we could go back 20 years. And I wish I would have focused a lot less on y'all knowing right doctrine and actually believing it in your heart. And what that would have looked like is I would have been much more concerned with sharing my sin and my struggle with you than making sure you understood all the systematic theology categories. Those things are still true and they're important. He's not rejecting those. He's like, but I was so much more concerned with making sure you knew what was right and, and what everybody else thought outside of this category was wrong. And I wasn't actually believing it and considering, wait, what's the, the plank or the log in my own eye? I'm only concerned with the speck and others. And so I told Stephanie, she said, how was it? I said, it was so different than what I expected, and it was so much more beautiful. It was so much more grace-centered. It was so much richer and more fruitful. And that really is a picture of what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. If you are a believer, and over time, year to year, whether you do New Year's resolutions or not, if you don't find yourself growing in humility and gratitude and compassion and mercy, but you only find yourself angrier and angrier at what's going on in the culture, then you need to take note of that. That, that, that is a really, really important diagnostic that your heart may legit be dead and that you're confused about where you even stand in relation to Jesus. The wisdom and the spirit that is given to us in Christ is going to make us more gentle, more open to reason, full of mercy good fruits, impartial. And so this is how Mark Sayers says as well. Then we turn out and say, what do we do in our culture that we know for a fact is going crazy, right? When it says it's good and let's celebrate, you know, a middle school boy saying, I'm a girl. It's like, no, you're not. God creates you male and female and we're considered intolerant and hateful if we say that that's not true. Sayers in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence says, we must not see it as a disaster, meaning our own cultural moment, but as an opportunity for rebirth, renewal, and revival. In the scriptures, the wilderness, the challenging and chaotic place, is transformed into an arena of spiritual growth where leaders encounter the presence of God and become a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. You don't need me to tell you this, but our world is so anxious. It is dominated by fear. That's what leads to so much conflict and anger all the time. A part of us reflecting the beauty of the church of Christ is to seek, and I know it's not easy, but to seek to live with a non-anxious presence. To seek to live with hearts that are actually resting in God's sovereignty and his goodness. A very, very common passage in Matthew 11, our Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And we could add to that, come to me, all you that are anxious and afraid and I alone will give you rest. You can take my yoke upon you. You can learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates that in his version, the message. He says that Jesus is inviting us to come and learn from him alone the unforced rhythms of grace. There's nowhere else that you can learn it 
or find any rest for your souls. And so Capic says it this way, until we believe the good news that the creator is also the redeemer, that we are not abandoned, alone, or left to our sins, until we believe that God is near, compassionate, quick to forgive, and abounding in love, until we believe these things, regardless of what is happening in our culture, we cannot and we will not rest. And that's really the, the battle. That's really where the, the, way, the war is waged in our hearts on a daily basis is that we're fighting to remember that the sovereign creator God is also our loving and gracious redeemer. And that's not a fairy tale that we just made up, but remembering the historical truth claims about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who on the cross declared, it is finished, everything necessary for my people to be redeemed, I've accomplished. And so Paul can say in Romans 8, when you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. My wife taught the women's Bible study um, last week on the fact, on the, the passage of Jesus saying, hey, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom. And oftentimes we can miss out on 90% of the meaning of that passage by only emphasizing in order to enter the kingdom, you have to humble yourself like a little child and receive it. You can't merit it or earn it through any amount of effort. And that's super important. That, that is like the fundamental mission, critical part of that passage. But to live as a little child is bigger than just simply the moment of conversion. A part of what the gospel reminds us of is when you belong to Christ, you are a son and daughter of God. That means you have a good, loving, wise, heavenly father who is in control and who sees you and who knows what's going on, who promises you that not a single hair on your head can fall to the ground apart from his will. And that reality of living like little children should enable our hearts to rest. It should enable us to be less anxious. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying it's easy. The reason we are told over and over again to cast our cares on the Lord is because it is so difficult and it is so hard. But it is true. If you belong to Jesus, you can breathe. You can relax. No matter how chaotic and crazy your life is right now. And so Capic says two primary ways that we live this out as children of God with restful hearts is that we sleep and we practice the Sabbath. Now, you may be surprised by the first one when he says we sleep. And Capic says this, sleep is a spiritual discipline that daily reminds us of our lack of control. I know we just, we don't talk about sleep as like a spiritual discipline and something that we should think about regularly. But I love that he included this. And then he shares some of his own personal story. He says, my own struggles with sleep have often revealed that either I am failing to trust in God's faithfulness or I am tempted to feel that God has left me as an orphan. I start to act as if the weight of the world rests on my shoulders. Concerns about my children, spouse, church, fears about the future and finances, health and happiness, they all weigh on me. This weight inevitably wakes me up, and then it keeps me from sleep. I can't sleep because I feel a need to constantly watch my back, prepare, and be ahead of the game. When I feel like an orphan or ignored by God, sleep becomes elusive to me. There are various causes that wake us up in the middle of the night. 
The theological question isn't how well you sleep or whether you wake up, but when you do wake up, to whom do you turn? Our worries and sorrows crush us if we are alone, but with God, we find comfort and rest. Maybe we need to start asking each other more on a regular basis as a healthy kind of spiritual diagnostic, how are you sleeping? I specifically wanted to include Capic's own kind of confessional struggle with sleep because I don't want you to leave here and if you struggle with sleep, and I struggle with sleep, I wake up all the time during the night, and I don't want you to leave with a sense of like shame and guilt and think like something's wrong with me. But also to be aware of God really does invite our hearts to rest. And it is true, the more we are resting and trusting him, we will be able to sleep um, more peacefully. Sleeping is an act of faith. And so if I ask you, how are you sleeping, what would you say? As Capic shared, I wake up at night for these reasons. Are you aware of why you're waking up or why you're not even sleeping very much? Do you stay up too late because you're worried about work? You can't shut it down. You can't turn your phone off. You're constantly checking emails. What is it that's driving you in that space? This lie that you have to be productive. You have to accomplish to prove you have worth? Is it I have to work hard enough so I can have some form of financial security and that's the thing that's going to protect me from, from chaos in the world, which we know factually is not true? Is it you're too afraid of missing out and so you constantly have to be on social media and you can't go to sleep? Or you're addicted to comfort so you stay up late at night binging shows. Please do not hear anything that I'm saying in a condemning way, but more of, a, of just questioning is something that we need to reflect on. And consider. In his book, The Common Rule, Justin Early said, it used to be that the upper class showed off their status by displaying their lives of leisure. Now we do it by conspicuously displaying lives of constant busyness. The more important you are, the more in demand your time is. So nobody who is anybody has time for enough sleep. And this, of course, is what we are in and our restless culture are after. We are after an abiding sense that someone thinks we're important. Does that resonate with you? If it does, I hope you can, you know, say, Lord, I need to be reminded of the story over and over again that I am important to you, that I'm important enough to you, not just as a, a general part of your creation, but as the object of affection that led you to leave your throne of glory and take on flesh, suffer and die so that I could be redeemed so that I could belong to you forever, so that I can have an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. The gospel reminds us of how important and valuable we are to the king of the universe. And so Psalm 127, listen to this. This passage is unbelievably rich in light of thinking about sleep and anxiety. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest. You eat the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now notice very quickly everything the psalmist packs into just three verses that, that get at so much of the struggle for our own hearts to sleep and to rest and to Sabbath. He starts by saying, unless the Lord builds, your work rests fully in the hands of God. Do you know and believe that? 
You can work and work and work and labor and toil, but if the Lord doesn't choose to bless whatever that labor is, it's going to be meaningless. It, it literally doesn't matter. And then he says, unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. All the things that you're concerned about, wanting to protect your family and yourself, which can be good things, unless the Lord watches over them, it's pointless. It's purposeless. Like, like we have no power. We rest fully and only in God's sovereignty he says, it is in vain you rise early and go late to rest. You eat the bread of anxious toil. And then notice, it almost seems like a random throwaway. He says, and your children are a heritage that the Lord gives to you. So your work, your desire to protect yourself from disaster, and your children, which may be the thing that give us the most anxiety, they all are in the hands of God. Like he's on it. Like, like we really can trust him. These are not just flippant, throwaway, you know, easy phrases that we, we don't need to anchor our heart in. They are, they are really true. One of the things that's helped me sleep more the last year or two that I've told you about is the Lectio Prayer and Devotion app. And almost every night, Stephanie and I will listen to this and turn the lights off and turn it on. And it begins with the words, the day is done, the night has come. Saturday will soon be over. And so in the quietness of this moment, I still my soul to spend this time with you. And then it'll have anywhere from a five to seven minute slow contemplative pace with different passages of scripture and different promises of God spoken over our hearts. And the most common verse that they use to end it every night is Psalm 4.8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, you make me dwell in safety. And i, I got to tell you, more than any sleeping pill I've ever taken, it helps quiet my heart and enable me to go to sleep. And when I wake up at night, I literally printed out that verse and taped it right beside my nightstand because when I wake up at night and I find myself anxious, I'll look at it and pray, Lord, help me to believe this, not just in my head, but actually believe it in my heart. Quiet my anxious fears and the things that I'm waking up thinking about, whether it's work, whether it's my kids, whether it's whatever else in the world, help me to trust you. And I know it's not easy. It's very difficult. But if we fight to do that well, it will change our lives. And a part of how we can begin to do it is even by practicing the Sabbath. You know, our God who loves us says a part of how you live differently as my people and you, you show by an act of faith that you trust me rather than your own gifts and abilities. And what the world says is that you rest on the first day of the week. Sabbath literally means to cease, cease working, to cease doing and so we really believe that God calls us in his commandments to Sabbath every single week. Now, I know we don't do it. We view Sunday as a day to go to church, and then it's like another Saturday afternoon to do whatever we want. And as a result, A.J. Swoboda in his book, Subversive Sabbath, says, We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and spiritually malnourished people in history. Mainly because we don't Sabbath. We got to remember, and we don't have time because we got to wrap up to dig all into the Sabbath. We're starting the book of Exodus next week, so we'll have a chance to talk about it more. That God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, and his declaration of love and affection over them is you're no longer slaves, you belong to me. And so here's how you live as my children you don't have to live like the world. And one of the main ways you don't have to live like the world is you can rest the first day of the week, you can rest and trust that I'm on it that I'm in control. Like we need that rhythm of grace in our life on a regular basis. 
And so one of the, the, the question I'll pose, and we'll finish with this, comes from John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says, if you're new to the Sabbath, a question that can give shape to your practice is this. What could I do for 24 hours that would fill my soul with a deep, throbbing joy? That would make me spontaneously combust with wonder, awe, gratitude, and praise. The answer, if you want the Cliff Notes version, is worship and rest. Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was a gift made for us that he invites our heart to participate in. As an act of faith that we're fighting and trying to believe that he is sovereign and he is good and that he's on it. In other words, that he's God and we're not. That we're just humans and that's okay. It's okay for us to be his redeemed children and not have to try to be God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just confess, well, something you clearly already know, what's common sense to you from our lives, and that is that we are really fearful and anxious and afraid. It shows up in our struggle and lack of sleep. It shows up in our anxiety and our anger and our worry about things going on in our society. I pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to be still and know that you are God. I pray, as the psalmist says, that because of your great love for us and peace, we can lie down and sleep. So I pray that you'll help us to consider even what a baby step would look like in resting in you more, even today on the Sabbath. And we ask this for your glory and also for our good. In Christ's name, amen.